1: Good evening, everyone. This is CNN tonight. I'm Allison Camerota. There are new, intriguing details from the January 6th committee transcripts tonight. You'll hear how Senator Lindsey Graham vowed to champion Donald Trump's election lies if only the White House could find him quote five dead voters. We'll explain. You'll also hear what Donald Trump thought about the appearance of the January 6th rioters. Spoiler alert: they were not his type. And you'll hear about the text that Don Jr. sent to Mark Meadows the day after his father lost the election. There was basically a roadmap for how to unconstitutionally keep Trump in office. Don Jr. says he cannot remember who sent him that text. But see if you recognize some of the unique language in that text as a clue. And as predicted, there are new developments tonight and new lies from Congressman-elect George Santos. You know the one? He's the guy who lied about his high school. He lied about going to college. He lied about working on Wall Street. He lied about being Jewish. Tonight, more of his lies are being exposed, and you'll hear him in his own words lie about his own mother's death. But first, let's start with the newly released portions of the January 6th transcripts. Let's bring in CNN's Sarah Murray. Sarah, what have you learned?
2: Well, you know, look, we are getting more insight into the interview that Donald Trump Jr. gave to congressional investigators. It's, of course, interesting because he's the former president's son. And, you know, you mentioned there was this text message that he sent to Mark Meadows, sort of laid out a plan for Donald Trump to stay in power that was pretty similar to what played out. So congressional investigators ask him, you know, why did you send this text to Meadows? And and Don Jr. says, look, this looks like a copy and paste job. I wasn't the real author. But he said, perhaps in reading it, it was the sophisticated you know, in detailed about things I don't necessarily know too much about. It sounded plausible, and I wanted to make sure that we were looking into the issues brought up in the text. And this was a text that Don Jr. had sent Mark Meadows on November 5th. And in part of the text at the time, it said, we have operation control, total leverage, moral high ground. POTUS must start second term now. There's more of that there, very similar to what actually played out. And again, CNN reported on this earlier when we reported on the Meadows text. Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyer said essentially the same thing that he said in that deposition, that, look, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. was not the author of this text, and all of a sudden they don't remember where it came from.
1: I don't think Donald Trump Jr. was the author of it because the we have operational control, total leverage, moral high ground. That grandiose language, I don't know, it kind of rings a bell, but we'll get into that with our guests. (laughs) Meanwhile, we're also getting new details about how Melania Trump was feeling... After the 2020 election. What's the latest on that?
2: Yeah, she was uh, pretty unimpressed. This was according to the interview that these congressional investigators did with Stephanie Grisham, who was, of course, a top aide to Melania Trump while they were in the White House. And Stephanie Grisham told investigators that Melania Trump was really sort of disenfranchised with the people around her husband at that point. She felt like he wasn't getting good advice. Here's part of what Stephanie Grisham said There didn't seem to be anybody pushing back. And that was one of her concerns. At least push back, at least look at another side and it didn't seem at that time that anybody, Mark Meadows included, who would have offered him other advice. She was really always the pragmatic, more realistic, give us the worst case scenario type of person and nobody did that for him and Grisham said that Melania Trump had sort of soured on Donald Trump Jr.'s advice, Kimberly Guilfoyle's advice, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani were other folks that she was very skeptical of so she sort of felt, again, according to Stephanie Grisham, like her husband at that time was not getting good advice and not getting the kind of pushback he should have
1: gotten. Mm-hmm. And that has proven to be true. Um, Sarah, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank Joining you. me now, we have former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, also Ramesh Panuru, editor of the National Review, and former Senator Doug Jones. Uh, gentlemen, great to have you here. Um, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant, but this language, the grandiose language in this text that Don Jr. sent to Mark Meadows, it does ring a bell, Doug. I mean, when when somebody (laughs) says, quote, we have operational control, total leverage, moral high ground, POTUS must start second term now. State assemblies can step in and vote to put forward the electoral slate. Republicans control 28 states, Democrats 22. Once again, Trump wins. I, I don't know if that was an inebriated Rudy Giuliani or Steve Bannon, but that was a roadmap for what they ended up trying to do.
3: Yeah, there's no question about that. And and the, the really interesting thing about that to me, Allison, is that it clearly shows that on that day, Donald Trump Jr. thought his father lost the election. Uh, they're already making plans. You don't hear anything in there about voter fraud, the fact that, they, that these lawsuits may be successful because they've got great evidence. He clearly thought the election was done. It was over and it hadn't even been called uh, yet. But again, I, I'm with you. I don't think that's his language, which I think is really kind of a sad state of affairs <laughs> when you got to copy and paste and plagiarize something to try to pretend to be smarter than you are. But that's just the way it is these days. Uh,
1: absolutely. And Ramesh, I mean, obviously through sheer force of will and I guess trickery, they thought, oh, this will work. We'll, we'll, this is what we'll do. Well, I guess- No question. You know, uh, the thing about it, of course, it wasn't actually
4: plausible, uh, and it wouldn't have been to anybody with a kind of rudimentary understanding of the U.S. Constitution and the electoral process. But uh, when Donald Trump Jr. testified that he wasn't especially conversant with all of that, I think that's one of the most plausible things that he's ever said. Uh, <laughs> and so maybe it did seem plausible to him. But, you know, one of the things that, that really – sticks out, and this is when Melania Trump complains about the bad advice Trump was getting. Well, Trump had the advisors he wanted. He was listening to the people he Mm -hmm. wanted to listen to. There was no shortage of people, even in the White House, who would have told him that this made no sense and was unconstitutional. Um, As the January, January 6th committee has pointed out, lots of people had serious reservations about all of this, even close to the president, but they're not the ones he wanted to listen to because they weren't the ones telling him what he wanted to hear.
1: Nick, one of the things that the January 6th committee has done so effectively is just illuminate all of this. You know, we had heard bits and pieces, obviously, and in every single hearing we had heard different um, hair raising things. But the the fact that they have now, they have it in black and white. It's in all of these transcripts. They laid it all out. And just this, I mean, this started the day after the election. The day after the election, they started making their plans for how to unconstitutionally keep him in office.
5: Oh, no question about it. I mean, I think what happened here was that Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman or some of the other crazies got to Don Jr. and basically used Don Jr. to get to Donald Trump. I mean, this was pretty much the continuing saga that occurred from the election on through January 6th, where you had people trying to get to Donald Trump. You had the people in the White House counsel's office trying to keep away Sidney Powell, trying to keep away General Flynn. But they all seemed to get through somehow. And I think this is probably one of those first breaches in the system where others provided Don Jr. with the roadmap of what they thought Donald Trump should do. And this was their first effort to get in front of him their crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. And it obviously worked. I mean, they just kept pounding away until they convinced Donald Trump that this was the way to go.
4: Another, yeah, you know what? Yeah, go, it, wasn't ahead, even just, it wasn't even just from the election onward, it was before the election as well, right? I mean, a right. number of things that the Trump administration and political operation did made sense only in the context of an attempt to delegitimate the election in advance and make it possible to contest it, right? That's why, they, the, we had Republican efforts to not allow the counting of mailed in ballots until after Election Day. It was to create this illusion that Trump was he- ahead because of Election Day votes um, and that something sinister was happening when the mail-in votes erased his leads.
1: Yes. And Donald Trump also planted the seeds that if he didn't win, there had to obviously be some sort of fraud. I mean, he before the election, he started planting those seeds as well. Senator, there's also something very um, illuminating in these transcripts about what Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, was doing behind the scenes. And so Christina Bob testifies to Senator Graham saying, well, get me your information. Just give me five dead voters. Give me, you know, an example of illegals voting. Just give me a small snapshot that I can take and champion. I mean, what I hear here, but I'm interested in your thoughts, is this is Lindsey Graham playing them. I mean, this is Lindsey Graham saying, I'm happy to go out and talk about how dead people voted. Just if you could just give me a few examples. And knowing, I think he knew that those would never come.
3: Yeah, I I, I do think, Allison, that it's Senator Graham's standpoint of saying, look, I'll get out there for you but I'm not gonna do it just based on no facts, no representation, uh, just only your word and representation. Give me anything. And, and politicians do that, lawyers do that all the time, where they take some facts, something that they can hang their hat on, and they kind of run with it and they, and they blow it up a little bit. And I think that that's what Senator Graham was gonna do, but he was, the subtle message there is, if you got nothing, leave me out of this, because I, yeah. I'm not gonna go out there and I'm not gonna walk the plank and give the American public information if I cannot back anything up, anything at all. I think is the operative word there.
1: That's how I read that, yeah. Nick. But it's but then, because um, Bob did produce something and sent it over to Senator Graham. And the um, title of it was, Chair- <laughs> "Chairman Graham Dead Votes Memo for Your Consideration." <laughs> <laughs> um, but but, look, but but strangely, I, I think- he never he never did do it. So obviously, it was there was no there there.
5: Well, he did do part of it. I mean, let's look at what happened afterwards. In, in, in early, I guess it was in December, a couple of weeks before Donald Trump made that famous January 2nd call um, to Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, Lindsey Graham was in there talking about the same things with Brad Raffensperger. He was trying to pressure him. It wasn't the dead voters this time. It was the people who didn't really sign the absentee ballots, which was another issue that Donald Trump was harping on, that he knew his faults. that he also raised um, with Brad Raffensperger after it didn't work with Lindsey Graham. So I don't think Lindsey Graham is necessarily an innocent player here. I mean, he jumped right in and called up Brad Raffensperger and gave him the same pitch that later was repeated almost verbatim by Donald Trump. And it's all on tape.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't mean to absolve Senator Graham of this. I right. just mean that I hear I hear a bit of a um, duplicity, I guess, happening where he's telling them one thing that I don't think he ever planned to do, Ramesh.
4: Yeah, I think it was an ambiguous statement because he's saying, you need to give me something to work with here. But he's also saying, it doesn't have to be a lot.
1: You can just give me a sliver <laughs> oh. of something And I will I will start pounding the table about it. Yeah. Okay. And then no surprise. um, I alluded to this in the open that Stephanie Grisham testified to what Donald Trump really thought of the rioters. Um, She says in this news transcript, I heard from several people in the West Wing, more on the military aid or Secret Service side than a couple of people. He was sitting in the dining room and he was just watching it all unfold. And that a couple of his comments, some of his comments were that these people looked very trashy, but also at what fighters they were. You know, that I mean, that's that is quintessential Donald Trump, Senator.
3: (laughs) You know, I I got I got nothing. It is quintessential Donald Trump. I, you know, I don't like these people. And and we've it's been one of the, I think, things that people have known for a long time. He doesn't like the people, the very people he tries to get to, to vote for him. He, he dogs them. He dogs Senator Sessions or, or his attorney general about being from the South and the University of Alabama and his accent. I mean, he just doesn't like these folks, but yet he will use them to his benefit. And I think that's a <laughs> it's pretty telling. Yeah, Yeah.
4: Ahead, Con John. men are not known for their respect and admiration for their marks as a general rule. <laughs>
1: I don't like them, but they like me and that's good enough. Right. Um, All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for all of that. There's much more from this latest batch of transcripts, including what the secretary of defense said about why he did not speak to Donald Trump, President Trump, during the desperate hours of the Capitol attack. Plus, the lying congressman elect strikes again, this time lying about his own mother's death. More now from the new transcripts released today by the January 6th Select Committee. And we're joined tonight by William Cohen, who served as the defense secretary under President Clinton. He's also a former U.S. senator and congressman. Secretary, I've really been looking forward to talking to you tonight, particularly about this next transcript, excerpt of the transcript, because it's of the um, acting then defense secretary. And it's what was going on behind the scenes during those awful three hours, three plus hours, when President Trump was MIA and the Capitol was being attacked. So let me read it to you and get your perspective on this. Okay, so this is between um, the chairwoman, uh, Liz Cheney, and Chris Miller, the, the acting defense secretary. Cheney says, so, Mr. Miller, did you try to reach President Trump that day? He says, no, I did not. She says, and why not? He says, I had all the authorities I needed to perform my duties and responsibilities that day and didn't need any further guidance from the president. He goes on to say, oh, she she asks, who were you on the phone with? And he says, I don't know who was on the calls. They were interagency synchronization calls, ma'am. I know Ambassador O'Brien was on there. I want to say, I think Pat Cipollone, whatever, the president's attorney might have been on there. I don't know more than that. She says, so in terms of the authorities that day to call out the guard, Where did those authorities for you come from? He says, those authorities resided with me. And once Speaker Pelosi and McConnell and the rest of the crew at that call, I'd already done it. But we had a request by that point in from Mayor Bowser, who had the legal authority to request it. But then, of course, the follow-up call where it was quite clear that the political leadership desired Department of Defense support. So what strikes you from that exchange and— would you have talked to the president that day? Does it surprise you that he didn't feel any need to talk to President Trump?
6: Well, what struck me uh, two things. Uh, he first said that I, I had all the guidance I needed. Uh, what was the guidance he had to begin with? Uh, it's very unclear whether he had any guidance. Secondly, uh, he cannot turn uh, to Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, the Attorney General, the National Security Advisor, His authority comes directly from the president of the United States. And if you read the executive order, I wrote it down, 11485, that says that he may act to call out the uh, D.C. Guard upon direction from the president of the United States. So at a minimum, uh, when he's getting calls from uh, the House uh, leadership and desperate calls, at a minimum, he needed to call the president of the United States. Um, The vice president can't give him the authority. Nancy Pelosi can't give it to him. No one else but the president. So um, the question would become is, uh, why did you uh, order the uh, uh, the guard at that point? He didn't have the authority, technically, according to the executive order.
1: That's really interesting. Also, the timeline is interesting and just, you know, woefully sad because at 2 p.m., the Capitol goes on lockdown. That's the first breach mm-hmm. of the building at 4.45 p.m., That's when the lawmakers, I believe Pelosi and Schumer, are on the phone with Miller and begging for the National Guard to restore order, and he says they will. Not until 5.40, that's when the first National Guardsmen arrive. So it's three hours and 40 minutes. Did it have to take that long?
6: I think under those circumstances, inaction uh, is action. Uh, The fact that he had an obligation to defend the Constitution and the country at a time when the Capitol was under attack. For him to be knowingly watching this unfold on television and not taking action for two and a half hours, uh, that is dereliction of duty. But to me, it's almost as if silence is complicity. In this case, inaction is action on the part of the president. He deliberately ignored what was going on and wanted it to succeed. So I think um, this is as close as you can get to uh, criminal activity, seditious activity, and he ought to be charged accordingly.
1: Let's talk about what's happening next week, and that's when the new Congress starts. As you know, um, Leader Kevin McCarthy is very interested in the speakership, and you have an interesting suggestion um, <laughs> right. that, that you don't think that the House speaker needs to come from inside the House. So what does that mean? Uh,
6: well, exactly. Uh, um, or um, Alton Fry, who is a friend of mine and a, uh, a real scholar, I've known for over 30, 35 years contacted me and ran an idea by me. And I said, let's do something together. Uh, and so we looked at the, uh, the constitution, obviously the constitution doesn't say that the speaker of the house has to be elected. It doesn't have to come from the membership even. And so we, uh, uh, we we know that under the circumstances, uh, McCarthy, um, who uh, desires to become speaker, is cutting or prepared to cut as many deals as he has to to get the numbers. There are at least a dozen or more uh, members of Congress who have indicated they don't want to support him. So then the question becomes, what does he have to do to get the votes? Uh, uh, Santos coming in will be one example, but he needs to um, pledge pledge some sort of an agenda to the more extremist elements of the, uh, the, co- the Congress. If anything, the mid-elections uh, showed was the country wants Congress to work. They want to get away from the fringes. They want to have some kind of bipartisan support on key issues. They're obviously going di- to differ on a multiple uh, levels and issues, but not the key issues dealing with our security, our economy, our energy, etc. And so I think the answer would be, appoint someone recommended by the Democrats, uh, because this is something the Democrats could go to the the Republicans and say, look, we want to work with you. We're prepared to recommend and support a Republican who would be uh, someone who could reach across the, uh, the aisle for the next two years. Because everything will change in two years. For the next two years, can't we work together to get some things done before the 2024 elections come? That's the purpose of it, to say that uh, can't we find a way? Yes, we can nominate uh, someone uh, that the Democrats can support and five Republicans by secret ballot could also support, Hmm. and you'd have a speaker who could work with both sides.
1: Well, everyone can read uh, your scenario that you've just laid out. Somewhat utopian, I I think, though (laughs) though I'm always optimistic in The New York Times. Uh, Thanks so much, Secretary Kahn. Great to talk to you tonight.
6: Allison, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, so listen to this. The congressman-elect caught fabricating his resume has yet another lie under scrutiny, this time about his own mother's death. We'll talk about that now. New lies tonight from Republican Congressman-elect George Santos. And this next one is worse than lying about where he went to college. CNN's Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona joins us. Melanie, what now?
7: Yeah, so this latest claim that's coming under scrutiny from Santos is that his mother died and it had something to do with 9-11. So this all came to light when a pair of conflicting tweets resurfaced. And Santos last year was responding to a tweet that claimed 9-11 was a victimless crime. And he responded by saying... 9-11 claimed my mother's life, so I'm blocking so I don't ever have to read this again. But just five months later, Santos said, December 23rd this year marks five years I lost my best friend and mentor. Mom, you will live forever in my heart. So definitely some discrepancies here. Now, of course, there are some first responders who developed health conditions and cancer after 9-11. We have reached out to Santos to clarify what role, if any, 9-11 played in his mother's death. uh, But we have yet to hear back.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's also, I don't think, any evidence that his mother worked in the Twin Towers, um, much less that it caused her her cancer. But in any event, his campaign website also made mention of this.
7: Yeah. Santos has said repeatedly that his mother worked in the World Trade Center on 9-11, including, as you mentioned, on his campaign website. That reads... George's mother was in her office in the South Tower on September 11th, 2001, when the horrific events of that day unfolded. She survived the tragic events on September 11th, but she passed away a few years later when she lost her battle to cancer. So, you know, Santos has previously claimed that his mother was a financial executive, but notably, that claim has disappeared from his campaign website. It is no longer on there. So it remains unclear whether Santos' mother actually worked at the World Trade Center on 9 11.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So, what's the latest on all of the legal side of this? There were new investigations announced yesterday. What's happening today with them?
7: Yes, yeah, so there are multiple investigations, both on the federal level and the local level. Uh, these are still in the early stages, but we do know that they are looking into his finances and whether potentially any financial crimes were committed. Aside from all the lies that we've been talking about, about his college experience and his work experience, there are still a lot of questions about where his income has come from, whether he followed proper protocols when it comes to his financial disclosure forms, loans that he made to his own campaign. So, really, just a host of questions. And the The Nassau District Attorney's Office said in a statement that his string of fabrications and false claims is, quote, nothing short of stunning. So really the legal scrutiny just heating up for Santos. Allison.
1: Okay, Melanie, thank you very much for all of that reporting. Let's bring back now Ramesh Panuru and former Senator Doug Jones. We also welcome Lauren Leader. She's the co-founder and CEO of All In Together. Lauren, let me just start with you, because when you start lying— about atrocities like the Holocaust and like 9-11, that's in a different category than padding your resume. And when you're lying about your own mother's death, this this is different than somebody who's trying to just sort of make himself appear more qualified than he was. I mean, it's not even in the ballpark
8: of somebody embellishing their resume. I mean, there's literally nothing that we've been able to find just over the last three days in his entire life story or background that seems to be correct, credible or even basically truthful. And some of this was known to New York Democrats in advance of the election. There is a lot of blame, I think, to go around when we start taking stock of how this guy got elected, because some of it is just so unbelievably outrageous. His financial issues are also one part of the picture. It's not just that he we have lots of questions about how he lent his own campaign, apparently six to seven hundred thousand dollars, which is, of course, a violation of campaign finance law. There's questions about where that money came from and how it's possible that he was evicted from his home just a year before, um, owing $10,000 in back rent on an apartment that was apparently $2,500. I mean, literally, there's nothing about his story that makes sense, adds up, or is credible in any way. We have to assume at this point that everything he said publicly must be false. It sure
1: seems like it. Um, Ramesh, why is it on a larger issue... The Republicans are willing to settle for such deeply flawed candidates. I mean, some of the candidates are laughable. Some of them are so deeply flawed, like George Santos. I mean, between Herschel Walker, you know, Doug uh, Mastriano, this guy, George Santos, they they can't find any Republicans that are more serious minded and sane and rational and qualified.
4: Well, I think that there are some big underlying issues that you raise, but Santos is a very special case uh, in that in, in a sense, he's a failure on the part of both parties because neither party discovered all of this insanity on his part all of this pathological lying until after he had been elected Uh, i mean if i'm a if i'm a democratic campaign strategist i am rethinking some of the money i spend on opposition research um, not having uncovered this um and you do have to assume i think that had all of this come to light earlier that santos would not have won the republican primary let alone the general election this is a guy you can't even you know you can't even trust him to if he swears on his mother's grave, right? I mean, he he will say anything for the most fleeting and momentary of advantages. For
1: sure,
8: I, Allison, I, I, I gotta I go say ahead. they knew they did have this Oppo research. So this is what makes this so interesting, and I completely agree that this is actually political malpractice on the part of New York Democrats. And I'm very involved in New York politics. I know a lot of the players. What I was told is that actually his campaign advisors, meaning Zimmermans. Did have some of this information. It was in a briefing book that came from the DNC. One of the issues was that, A, they couldn't, they claimed that they could not get Long Island media to cover it. But I think the bigger issue is that they believed that his implic his association with the January 6th riots He claimed, one of his many claims was that he was at the Stop the Steal rally on the 6th and that he financed the legal, uh, he covered the legal bills of some of the protesters and uh, rioters who were charged with crime. So we'll see if any of those things are true. But the Democrats on Long Island that were supporting Dimmerman believed that that enough was, that was disqualifying enough. And they focused on that in the campaign and ignored all of this other stuff that they actually did know about his background. They apparently didn't check on his degrees, but they knew that his financial dealings were shady. There were questions about his work experience. So this has exposed a huge problem in New York state Democratic politics. He's not the only race that won. This is the worst of it. But Democrats suffered huge losses all across New York and across Long Island. There's a lot of questions to be asked mm. among Democrats here, too.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting insight and really helpful, Lauren. Also, I just want to say there there was a local newspaper that was reporting yeah. on him and it was highlighting it. I mean, you know, shout out to local newspapers and why we need them so desperately. But you're right. It, it, the January 6th stuff got a lot more attention than all of this other crazy stuff. And, Senator, you know, um, pathological liar is an actual disorder in the DSM. I mean, there's many different theories about what causes it. But either way, I don't think you want your U.S. representative to suffer from it. And I know that Kevin McCarthy (laughs) needs him for, you know, to become speaker. But then isn't he just a huge liability? I mean, after he gets the vote to become speaker, do you want this guy hanging out in the House of Representatives?
3: Well, not only is he gonna hang out, he's gonna be a, a, an object of the media. Media are gonna follow him every, every time they get the chance. And by the way, just as Lawrence said, a, a note to the New York Democrats, nothing is disqualifying enough in today's political world. Nothing, no one issue is disqualifying enough. If you've got a lot, go for it, because you never can tell in tribalism that we've got in the voters these days that people will overlook so much and still vote for folks. But Kevin McCarthy's got a, a problem, not just with this guy, but he's got a major problem with George Santos. And I think that it's, it's a incumbent upon Republicans to speak out more than they're doing right now. I, it seems to me that they really need to call for his resignation. You know, five years ago, five years ago this year, I ran against a guy named Roy Moore. And Republicans, when all the issues came out about Roy Moore, there were actually Republicans saying, I'm not sure we're going to seat him. I'm not sure he should be elected. Uh, Senator Shelby said, I'm not going to vote for him. I'm going to write in a good Republican. Those days are over, Allison. We don't see that in, in the parties these more, especially with the Republican Party where things are right now. They need the vote. They need to the gavel. And McCarthy's in, got a tough spot right now because he'll lose that seat. I believe if there's another election.
1: I can't believe that was only five years ago. Did you say that was five years ago, the Roy Moore stuff? I can't believe it It feels like a lifetime ago. I remember reporting on that, you know, so much virtually every day. And you're right. There was a feeling that this can't stand. And now something has changed. I mean, Ramesh, it's just we've come light years away from that. I mean, and, And again, to my question, do you agree that for Republicans, there's nothing disqualifying? I mean, he's lying to voters at this point. Well, I think Republican
4: voters, there's a significant number of them for whom all these sorts of issues can be disqualifying. That's a reason why, for example, Mastriano didn't get as many votes as Oz in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a reason why a lot of these um, uh, Republicans who did disappointingly didn't win, even while other Republicans were doing well, because voters distinguished between the Republicans who were reality-based and the Republicans who were pretending that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. So I I take the Senator's point about polarization having increased, but I don't think that we're quite as far gone as that. And I think actually the voters um, were pretty sensible in, in a lot of respects and are making some distinctions. The, the problem here was notwithstanding some local media, I just think most voters were not aware of the uh, of just how much deception there was and how abnormal it was, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, oh, a politician will stretch the truth or pat his resume, but of course we're talking about something on a completely different
1: level and there just wasn't much understanding of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's in a different solar system. Um, friends. Thank you all very much. Really great conversation. Okay, now to this. Uh, she's an EMT who normally responds to emergencies. But what happened when she had her own emergency and got stuck during Buffalo's deadly blizzard? Our next guest is going to tell us her story Come after this. Buffalo is still trying to dig out from the deadly blizzard. The police commissioner says the search for bodies goes on, and he calls it a grueling and gruesome task. At least 39 people have died in Erie County alone. Our next guest was trying to save people. Carrie Giannata is an advanced EMT, but she too got trapped in the blizzard. Carrie, thanks so much for being here. Your story is um, incredible. You, uh, As I understand it, you got an emergency call on Friday at 4.30 p.m., uh, that a stranded motorist was having trouble breathing, and you swung into action, but you couldn't make it there. What happened?
9: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, the day started off um, somewhat fun. You know, we're in Buffalo. We're used to snow. We like it a lot of the time, at least I do. Um, The visibility was rough for our first couple calls, and we were able to get through those okay um, for this last call, we made it to um, our Lower East Side of Buffalo, and it just was coming down so hard and so heavy um, that we did end, get a, end up getting stuck. We, um, we were stuck for about four hours. And what was that, that like, that, Carrie? Uh, I mean, just
1: explain. You, so you were in, what, an ambulance? or you, What vehicle yes. were you in, and how did you get stuck? We were in a Ford Transit um, ambulance.
9: We got stuck uh, pulling over to check out the man that was supposed to be in the car that we were going to rescue or, or, or get um, and check up on. Uh, we did get stuck pulling over and um, there was no getting out. It was so fast
1: and so heavy, the snow, it just weighed down the truck and we were just spinning tires. Oh my gosh. So you were stuck in basically just a huge snow bank. Um, for, basically. For- for as we, as we, is, I think we're seeing pictures. Oh, no, we're seeing mm. pictures of when I think you were rescued. So you were stuck for, for four plus hours. And what was that like, Carrie? I mean, w- did you have heat? Did you have food, water?
9: Yes. Luckily, we do come prepared. At least my partner and I, we had food, we had water, we had heat and gas. Our, our crews, you know, our, our dispatchers and our, um, our supervisors made sure that we had gas for the day, that we had time to do that that um, it was scary. It was getting the, the truck was getting cold from the inside out. It was freezing. The windows were frozen. We had no, dis- no visibility. We couldn't see out. Um, my partner and I do consider ourselves lucky. We were only in the truck for four hours. We do have other crews that were stuck in their trucks for upwards of 16, 20 hours. They did have heat. Um, some didn't have food. Some didn't have water. Our supervisors were trying to get to them. The um, National Guard was trying to get to them. The Buffalo Fire was trying to get to them, and they were just
1: stuck. Oh my! Um, That's really scary. Yeah, I can imagine that is. I mean, you must have. It must have crossed your mind that help wasn't going to be able to get to you. It it did.
9: Um, I'm not going to lie about that. But we tried to, you know, stay calm. I mean, that's what we're here for. To be honest, what was breaking my heart specifically was just knowing that the community that we serve that we were not able to get to them. Um, we continue to hear calls going out on our radios, um, about sick people, the people that we care about people, why we do what we do. Um, and in turn, you know, our community has come forth and helped us so much do the things that we couldn't do at that day. Um, there's been such an outreach from our community that is so heartwarming and, um, has really, you know, risen us from the ashes once again, because Buffalo has seen tragedy before. Oh yeah. Um in the terms of maybe the top shooting that has happened this year that was really tough in our community.
1: Um but we can't say enough. Yeah I mean Carrie, I think that um it's it is wonderful how much humanity obviously we're seeing and neighbors helping neighbors, but I also think your story is so valuable because we've heard so many stories of motorists who were trapped, who were calling 911 and didn't understand why help wasn't coming. You know, the police and the dispatcher was saying help is on its way. Just, you know, be Mm -hmm. patient. Help is on the way. And then help couldn't get there. And of course, it's uh, confusing and frustrating and scary for the passengers. But you are living proof of you were trying to get there. You know, EMTs are trying to get there, but the snow was just overpowering and overwhelming. Uh, Yeah. And so so ultimately you were saved by the fire department.
9: We were, um, luckily they were passing us. The trucks started getting stuck. Even the fire trucks were getting stuck very shortly after we got stuck. Um, they had happened to be passing by and, um, we turned and looked and they were honestly like our, our angels at the time because we didn't expect anyone to come. Um, we were really planning on hunkering down there for, for quite a while, um, I'm really glad that myself, my partner, and none of our crews, you know, that everyone made it out okay. Um, I think it's heavy on our hearts right now, um, just knowing that we couldn't do much. Um, well, they suspended well, EMS yeah, pretty yeah. shortly after we all got stuck.
1: I mean, Carrie, you actually have done a lot. We've heard of, of so many people being rescued, and you too are an angel. Um, but I really appreciate your sentiment, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. It does help us understand just how bad it was. Uh, at the height of the storm so thanks so much for being with us
9: we appreciate it thank you so much and again our community thank you so much couldn't have done it without you guys
1: that's beautiful okay we will check back of course with buffalo over the next many days next he's perhaps the most famous athlete in the world we'll remember pele after this Tonight, the world is remembering one of the greatest athletes of all time. Brazilian soccer legend Pele passed away earlier after a battle with colon cancer. He'd been hospitalized for the last month with complications. He was 82 years old. Players and fans at a French League match honored him with a standing ovation, and tributes are pouring in. Pele electrified crowds, playing in four World Cups, and the only soccer star in history to win three. His first World Cup was at the age of 17 in 1958. And he joined the Santos Football Club at 15 and went on to score more than 1,200 goals in his professional career. Pele was a literal national treasure. When European clubs tried to sign him, Brazil declared him a treasure to keep him from playing elsewhere. And he knew he had a great gift.
10: You know, I feel very comfortable because... uh Something I cannot answer was why God gave me this, you know, you know this uh, gift. <laughs> this was a gift from God.
1: Pele's funeral will be held on Tuesday. For more on his legacy, let's bring in Chris Whittingham, a sc- soccer podcaster and commentator. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Um, what, why was he the greatest soccer player? What was it that made him so great?
11: Well, I think if you read so much of what has been said about him in these last few hours, there is this this use of language that you just don't hear about other players. I saw one quote that was, there is one player in the world who is the best player. I refuse to classify Pele as a player. He sort of transcended what had come before him. And the Brazilians have this term for how they play soccer. It's called jogo bonito, play beautifully. And it really kind of began with him. He was able to conjure a way of playing the game that had been not seen before and you have to remember that at this time soccer was not really a sport that was televised worldwide and so every four years a lot of the world gathered to see what was going on in other countries and when you see the yellow and blue of the of the brazil jersey of of the brazil kit it just stuck out how incredible this player was he again announced his arrival in the 1958 world cup final if you go back and watch the goals that he scored they would stand the. Te- they stand the test of time. They look like goals that would be scored now, better than some of the goals that are scored now. It's kind of remarkable. Normally, when you see black and white footage, it doesn't hold up, but for this player, it does.
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, Pele, he was a household name. You know, it, it, you didn't have to be a soccer fan or follow sports to know Pele. And so but I'm, I'm fascinated by what you're describing as his kind of ineffable quality. Was it fancy footwork? I mean, just sheer athleticism? Like what what dif- why was he so different than everybody else?
11: Yeah, soccer is not really a game that's defined by athleticism as such. It's defined, as you say, by that skill, the ability to control with every part of the body that is not the arm, right? So incredible skill with his feet, incredible skill controlling with his chest, with his head, with his thighs. Any any means of controlling the soccer ball, he was well capable of doing so and so you see this player that just sort of transcended that that goal that i mentioned the 1958 world cup final he sort of controls it off his chest loops it over a defender and you see almost all the defenders like wait what what just happened what what is going on here and 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 that was sort of the quality that he played with and like you, you showed in that package just now He sort of was aware of it, and most importantly, opponents were aware of it. If you go back and look at his history in the 1966 World Cup in England, he was basically kicked out of the tournament, not kicked out because of a ban, but because opposition were intent on kicking him because they did not allow him to play the beautiful game. He actually almost threatened to quit ahead of the 1970 World Cup, which Brazil won, because of how violently he was being treated by opponents. Everyone was sort of aware of this unstoppable skill. Mm.
1: So what does his death mean for Brazil and the rest of the world
11: yeah I, I think when, when you talk about Brazil it's an interesting legacy uh, it was this very nearly happened there was uh, some reports that came out that he was in failing health just before their World Cup campaign started and became pretty clear that that World Cup is going to be about playing for Pele considering his incredible <laughs> legacy there but this is one of the greatest figures in the history of this sport and as the globe's biggest sport it means he is one of the biggest figures in all of the world even here in the United States. Uh, he is a figure that transcends because of his time with the New York Cosmos in the North American Soccer League in the mid-70s. And it was funny. I was reading about when he was sold on coming here. It was like, don't don't get championships. Get a country. You can have the entire United States behind you if you succeed here. And for a time, he did. And he's just sort of one of these one-word one word names that just sort of means so much. Uh, I'll kind of close by saying that Andy Warhol, the, the famous painter who painted him, said that Uh, normally I talk about 15 minutes of fame. He will have 15 centuries of fame and that he very much did and that he very much will.
1: Mm, That's awesome. Chris Whittingham, thank you so much for giving us all of that great perspective. Thank you. Okay, another day, another batch of transcripts laying out the deliberate attempt to overturn the election. But will we see any accountability now that we see what was going on behind the scenes? Stay with us. The January 6th committee releasing more than 100 interview transcripts. They're trying to get out as many as possible before Tuesday when Republicans take over the House. Every day brings new revelations. So what will the Department of Justice do with it all? Let's talk about what we've learned with former Congressman Charlie Dent, also CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. We also have Vanity Fair special correspondent Molly Zhang Fast and former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. Great to see all of you guys. Let's just Look at a couple of the things that have been revealed today by the committee. And one, I think, particularly interesting one is Don Jr. And the texts that Don Jr. was sending to Mark Meadows. And I want to juxtapose what he sent the day after the election. So the day after his father lost the election and then what he sent on January 6th, because I I think there's an arc between these two. The first one that he sends that he claims is not his writing and it doesn't sound like his voice, frankly, and he also claims he doesn't remember doesn't remember who sent it to him. It says, we have operational control, total leverage, moral high ground. CODIS must start second term now. State assemblies can step in and vote to put forward the electoral slate. Republicans control 28 states. Democrats, 22 states. Once again, Trump wins. That's the roadmap the day after the election, Ron, for how to keep Donald Trump unconstitutionally in office. OK, now fast forward to January 6th when they've tried some of these things. And suddenly Donald Trump Jr. is texting a different tune. Here it is. We need an oval address. He has to lead now. It's gone too far. It's gotten out of hand. I mean, what did they think their shenanigans was going to lead to? It it led to chaos and violence.
12: Yeah. And, you know, that that there's a dangling thread in that first series of uh, texts or emails that I can't imagine the special counsel won't be interested in investigating because, as you note. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. is really the first one to suggest, and this is in the full report, uh, to suggest the strategy of trying to get state legislators to overturn the result in their state and simply uh, substitute Donald Trump electors for Joe Biden electors based on the actual verified uh, results in their state. In this deposition, he is asked about that, because as you point out, this is very specific and in language that doesn't seem uh, to flow naturally from Donald Trump. Junior, And he says, Allison, in the in the deposition that uh, it is, quote, a cut and paste job. He acknowledges that, that it came from somewhere else. But then he insists that he can't remember where it came from. In fact, if you take out the words, I don't remember, I don't recall, I can't remember, this 105-page transcript might be down to five pages, you know, from, mm-hmm. from Donald Trump uh, Jr. But the fact is that I can't imagine the special counsel, Uh, is going to allow this to simply drift away, this idea that he can't remember where the idea came from that ultimately led to the fake elector scheme uh, that they are investigating, because he is very clearly suggesting it came from somewhere else. He's just not saying where.
1: Molly, maybe we can jog his memory, because the language in that first one, we have operational control, total leverage. It's the grandiose language that we heard pretty soon after the election, from people like Rudy Giuliani and or Steve right. Bannon. I mean, it's it's not a stretch to think that that some of those folks were texting Don Jr. these suggestions. Yeah.
13: I mean, it's a little heady for Don Jr. to know how many states there are. But I do think that there are a number of people who were advising him. And he was talking to congressmen. He was talking to, you know, he has a bunch of lawyers. And, and, you know, there are many, many members of Trump world, some of whom have received pardons, who were advising this. I mean, you know, he, uh, reading that deposition, you really do see he was very involved in all of this. And, you know, and I think that ultimately, um,
1: you know, he got very over his head. Right. And and that's what we saw with the kids. I mean, Charlie, then it goes wrong. Then it goes horribly, horribly wrong. And that's when, Don Jr. starts texting Mark Meadows, somebody's got to stop this, get him out there, get him to make a statement, you know, this is out of control.
14: Oh, these guys like Donald Trump Jr. and others were instigating this whole uh, post-election scenario that his father, you know, shouldn't leave office that he won and all this nonsense. And then on January 6th, they're shocked shocked (laughs) that uh, their followers are at the Capitol, you know, know, ransacking the place, assaulting officers and uh, attempting to harm... Members of Congress, uh, you know, so I, you know, these guys are trying to, you know, wash their hands of, of what they had done. And, and with respect to these fake electors, I have to think that the uh, uh, that the grand jury and the DOJ are looking closely at that scheme. In fact, one of the uh, fake electors, the chair of the Pennsylvania fake electors, kicked me out of his gun club in 2017 because I wasn't a Trump sycophant. I mean, I can tell you all these. I mean, and I know that guy was close to the uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, and so. I'm just saying that, uh, so Donald Trump Jr. has some, I think he has some dirt on his hands here and, uh, and it's probably a good thing he can't recall anything uh, because I think he's got some explaining to do.
1: And Shan, that leads us to you. So mm. with all of this evidence, now, now what is basically the question and what accountability will there be? And so uh, Don Jr., Mark Meadows, Donald Trump, who's, who is most, well, not most in trouble, who will be in trouble?
10: Uh, I would say Meadows leads that pack uh trump that's Trump senior next uh, with Don probably a little bit lower down there. I mean to Ron's point absolutely special counsel would be very interested in that, but their tools to compel further disclosures are, are are limited, and actually it's really interesting, Allison, because you're actually seeing some of the advantages of the congressional investigation where they have these sort of freewheeling depositions with the uh, witness's lawyer being present, it's not as intense or curated of an experience as is a grand jury. If it was a grand jury to begin with, most likely he would have said nothing, just constantly taking the fifth. But here they're able to tease some of this type of information out of him. He calls it a cut-and-paste job, suggesting where do you get it from, but then he says they can't remember. So he's giving people some leads to look at, probably inadvertently, there, But that is one of the big differences between a congressional investigation and a grand jury one. And of course, double edged sword for DOJ. They have all this testimony now and they have to reconcile it, look for inconsistencies. Possibly some things are exculpatory and some things are just a little bit ambiguous for them. So it's really a big job ahead of them. But certainly, I'd say the theme in all these transcripts coming out is that all roads flow towards Mark Meadows. So I think he's number one on the hit list.
1: That's interesting, Shannon. Well, Here's a follow up. What does that mean? What does what does his trouble look like?
10: Well, it looks like they would be treating him uh, quite seriously in terms of the potential charges there. Again, at this point, when it moves to the criminal aspect of it, I don't think their powers of compulsion grow any greater. I mean, really, people are going to circle the wagons. He's going to take the fifth. But if they have a conversation with his lawyers and say, look, you know, we think we have enough to indict your client. Do you want to cut a deal and cooperate? That's very different than any posturing you might make before a congressional committee. So I think that's what it looks like is what kind of charges they may bring and what most importantly, practically as a prosecutor and defense attorney, what kind of conversation are they going to have with his lawyers?
15: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Ron, I keep reading this one that is um, an exchange between Christina Bob, one of the, the lawyers, and Lindsey Graham, just because I think it's so it's theater of the absurd. I mean, it's so telling. They were even, I think the way I interpret what Senator Graham was saying to Christina Bob here is that he was basically calling her bluff. So he says, so Christina Bob, the part of the transcript that she testifies to is Senator Graham was saying, get me your information. Just give me five dead voters. Give me, you know, an example of illegals voting. Just give me a very small snapshot that I can take and champion. And I think that Senator Graham is savvy enough to know that she would never be able to produce five dead voters. So he was saying, I'm happy to be your champion, knowing that that wasn't going to happen.
12: I don't know if I interpreted it. That's a reasonable interpretation. It could also be him saying, just give me anything and I will be willing to go out and defend Donald Trump. But it really goes to your point from a minute ago about accountability. And obviously, criminal liability is one form of accountability. But as the committee itself noted in the report, it's not the only form of accountability. And they talk about uh, disbarment or um, uh, uh, sanctions against lawyers who were involved in the effort to overturn the election, where they are conspicuously silent is what, if any, uh, sanctions should there be against the members of Congress who participated in this? And I think Charlie was part of an open letter, a bipartisan group of former members who said, look, people have been sanctioned for a lot less than participating in an effort to overthrow uh, the election the committee chose an, an election the committee chose to really stay away from the issue of what other members of Congress did they didn't reprint a lot of those uh, any I believe of the tax from meadows to members of Congress in which they were exhorting him to even declare martial law to you know to prevent uh, the, the transfer of power um, but this issue of whether other members of Congress and there were dozens as well as dozens in the states who participated in the fake electors. Uh, Is the only question there whether or not they committed a crime? Or is there a question about whether there should be accountability in other forms? As I say, the committee is very firm on that point about lawyers. It's much more vague about members of Congress. uh, But I think that is an open question that needs to be addressed.
1: And Molly, I do want to get your thoughts on that. But Shan, what's the answer to that? What's the accountability for members of Congress?
10: Well, I think uh, it's purely a political aspect. Uh, There could be the referrals to the House Ethics Committee, which has been somewhat toothless in the past. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to Ron's point, I mean, I think you're seeing some of the advantages of congressional investigations and you're seeing some institutional biases there. They, from an outsider looking at this, they definitely went light on fellow members of Congress.
1: Okay, quickly, Molly, Mm -hmm. go ahead. I mean,
13: we've heard that Representative Loudermilk was giving tours. Um, you know, there's definitely been there were members of Congress who spoke at the Stop the steel rally. I mean, there are certainly a lot of members of com- Congress Im- indicated. So it is a bit
1: strange that there's not more on that. And Charlie, I just want to quickly get to you because you were on the Ethics Committee. So is it is it toothless in this case?
14: Well, the, the committee is, is uh, basically constructed in such a way you have five Republicans and five Democrats, uh, and so if one side, you know, chooses not to play ball, there's there's not going to be any type of a sanction. Uh, I have I sense that on this issue. If it were come these members referred to the committee, I doubt that there are going to be any sanctions on this one. I just don't know how they're going to come uh, to an agreement unless they have really damning information on the role of a particular member in terms of inciting this. Insurrection. I don't see them coming to an agreement.
1: Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of your insight into this. Meanwhile, President Biden is in the Virgin Islands tonight, where sources say he and his family are mulling the pros and cons of his re-election bid. But with the decision all but made, what has he accomplished in these two years? And what kinds of challenges will he face in the next two years? we look at all of that ahead. President Biden continues his holiday getaway in the U.S. Virgin Islands tonight, but he did some work today. He signed the $1.7 trillion federal spending bill avoiding a government shutdown. In a tweet, he points to what he calls, quote, a year of historic progress and adds looking forward to more in 2023. So will more include a run for reelection? Journalist and filmmaker Chris Whipple is the author of the upcoming book, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. And he joins us tonight. Chris, great to have you here. Is there any doubt in your mind tonight that Joe Biden is running for a second term?
16: You know, there's almost no doubt that he he is going to run unless there's something very strange in the water down there in St. Croix where he's talking this over, presumably with Dr. Jill Biden. She's the only one, by the way, who could change his mind on this but I don't think she will.
1: She's and on look, board, right? I mean, that's been some of the reporting that, that she's been on board. And I guess since the midterms, they've felt some momentum about this.
16: Well, there's no question that uh, Joe Biden feels the wind at his back, um, w- w- without a doubt. I mean, look at the midterms and the the way they defied all the odds. And I think that um, Joe Biden and the White House are also uh, celebrating and, and hoping to exploit of what has become a political fact of life, and that is that Joe Biden's opponents have underestimated underestimated him at every step of the way uh, throughout his career, and uh, you know they're they're learning a hard lesson right now, and they may may well pay a, a heavy political price. You
1: have just spent a lot of time. Um, reporting on the inner workings inside the Biden White House. And you say the Biden presidency is the most consequential of your lifetime. You liken his legislative record to that of LBJ. How so? Make the case.
16: Well, you know, it's 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 without a doubt been a tale of two presidencies. And I write about this in great detail in my upcoming book, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Unfortunately, my editor would kill me if I told you too much about the why?
1: Book why can't I, you come on cool. and just spill the tea with us?
16: Because it's not out until January seventeen and <laughs> and viewers can pre-order it. Okay, yeah. uh, I, hope, I hope see you're getting will. in the
1: plug. your publishers gonna be very happy. but, but, but go on tell us. That,
16: but having said that, there's there's just no question about it that uh, the second year of Biden's presidency has been as consequential as any year of any president in modern history from rallying uh, NATO to uh, defend Ukraine against Vladimir Putin to passing a legislative agenda that that does rival LBJ. So I think that's why they have uh, the wind at their back. There are plenty of challenges ahead. God knows Uh, just to name a few first Biden's got to try to avoid a recession. He's got to try to tame inflation. He has to implement all of that legislation because it doesn't mean anything until the rubber meets the road. He's got to keep NATO unified against Vladimir Putin, no easy task. And he also has to continue to be aware of the threat to democracy in the form of Trumpism. It hasn't gone away. And one real challenge will be trying to unify the country in the event that Trump is prosecuted in state or federal court which i think is almost inevitable that's going to be a high wire act for this president and and finally if i could just add one more thing there's there's a real really big personnel challenge coming up uh, biden's white house chief of staff ron klain who has had a lot to do with the president's success may well be re- approaching a point where he wants to move on there's 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 a reason why white house chiefs of staff last an average of 18 months. Hmm. Klain's been there for two years and if he leaves, those are going to be awfully big shoes to fill.
1: Well, what changes if he leaves?
16: Well, everything. Uh, you know, the, the White House chief of staff is the second most powerful job in government. I think that uh, one of the reasons that Biden has been successful is that uh, Klain, again, has known the president for 30 years, he, he knows Capitol Hill. He knows how to run the White House. He was the most qualified person, really, ever to step into that job, having worked for nine previous White House chiefs, if you can believe that. And and the results show. Um, you know, the first year was not without a lot of real problems and challenges, from Afghanistan to the Delta variant to everything else. But at the two-year mark, uh, you really have to put Ron Klain in elite company with some of the best White House chiefs. I think in history,
1: hmm. um, Chris. One of the things that we know is in your um, upcoming book that I think is really eyebrow-raising is that President Biden doesn't trust some of his Secret Service detail. That sounds like a problem. So, wh- well, why, look, what's if, that if, about?
16: If that's true, it, it's a real problem, and it's it's just almost hard to imagine. It's you know, I mean, the the, the Secret Service is there first and foremost to protect the president's life. But they're also there to, to they're also expected to keep his secrets. Uh, that's about all I can tell you without getting into the details of the book, which I, I promised my editor I wouldn't do.
1: <laughs> that is a good tease. Well, Chris, we'll, we'll be buying the book on January 17th. It's called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Um, thanks so much for talking about you all can of this.
0: reorder right it. Okay. Thanks so much. <laughs> OK,
1: really interesting. All right. Meanwhile, Southwest Airlines claims it will operate a normal schedule tomorrow as it faces a sharp warning tonight from the federal government. And up next, one passenger's personal story of going through the Southwest travel chaos, and it's not over yet. Southwest Airlines says it will resume normal service tomorrow after eight days of travel chaos that stranded hundreds of thousands of passengers. More than 2,300 flights were canceled today. Now, the Transportation Department is warning Southwest it may level steep fines if the airline fails to follow through on promises to reimburse passengers and return their bags. More tonight from CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh.
17: Eight days in and finally Southwest is planning to return to normal operations Friday, issuing a statement saying, with another holiday weekend full of important connections for our valued customers and employees, we are eager to return to a state of normalcy. But today, it's still chaos for Southwest passengers. The anxiety level is, has become crazy. One of the country's biggest carriers canceling nearly 2,400 flights Thursday, capping a week of travel misery that stranded thousands more.
8: It is very devastating. Southwest actually booked me on a flight for January 2nd. Um, my wedding is tomorrow. December 30th.
17: Soon to be married, Katie Demko was scheduled to fly out of St. Louis with family for her own wedding. But Southwest's cancellations meant she had to miss meeting her fiancé at the altar in Belize. And when Southwest told her she may be able to rebook.
8: They did tell us that once it would go in the system, that it would not actually come to me. We wouldn't be able to book those because they had overbooked. But for some customers. (laughs)
17: The most emotional reunions seen at airports have been between people and their bags.
5: I just haven't had this bag in a week. I've been wearing other people's clothes.
17: Southwest first placed all the blame for stranded flyers, their lost bags, and its inability to get people new flights on bad weather. But airline CEO Bob Jordan admitted the company's systems were too outdated to deal with any big disruption.
16: The tools we use to recover from disruption serve as well 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double down on our already existing plans to upgrade systems for these extreme circumstances so that we never again face what's happening uh, right now.
17: Southwest pilot and flight attendants unions say they've been ringing the alarm about the outdated system
0: for years. We've been harping on them since um, 2015-ish. Every year we've seen some sort of meltdown happen.
2: Executives should have committed to ensuring that our IT infrastructure would be able to handle that growth and change Uh, in the way we operate our flights.
17: Southwest has promised to reimburse customers, but good luck reaching an agent on the phone, let alone in person.
8: We're still in line,
17: and nobody's giving us any direction. Those unable to fly home are finding creative solutions. I actually went up to the attendant and I said, Is there anybody going to Denver? Annie Brunner and her wife, Megan, were stranded in Minnesota, unable to find a flight or rental car to get home until a complete stranger offered to drive the couple back to Denver.
4: I think people are hesitant in this day and age to kind of lean on a stranger. In our case, it couldn't have worked out any better.
17: Southwest is busing some passengers from airport to airport in order to bring some relief amidst a total meltdown.
13: I'm still stranded. I need to drive nine more hours. My feet are swollen. I'm upset, I'm stressed, I'm tired, and I hate them.
17: The Transportation Department formally warning Southwest Airlines that it will take action if the airline does not follow through on promises to reimburse passengers for alternative transportation, hotels, meals, not to mention baggage reunification. And take a look behind me, I mean, this mountain of suitcases is a symbol of the cascading effects of all of these travel nightmares. Uh, A lot of folks still trying to get reunited with their bags. Southwest did hire extra staff to sort through all of these pieces of luggage. But of course, despite the promises of getting back to normal on Friday, Allison, it is going to take days for everyone to get
1: reunited with their bag. Allison? Lucy, thank you very much for showing us all of that. And joining me now is Deb Haynes. She is one of the Southwest passengers who can relate to that very trying (laughs) story. Deb, oh my gosh, your story is so frustrating. Let's just share it with everybody. On Friday, you were supposed to be flying from Denver to Seattle, and your flight was canceled. So two days before Christmas, your flight was canceled. It was rebooked for Monday after Christmas. Yes. So
15: how did that sit with you? Um, It was just very sad. Um, My daughter is a travel nurse out in Seattle and um, my neighbor's kids are out in Seattle as well. So we were just trying to get the families together for Christmas. We had an Airbnb booked in Leavenworth, Washington. It was just going to be a magical weekend. And so it was a, it was a huge letdown. Um, Right. Because you showed up up up. together. Yeah. So, so you went, just to tell it, it it gets
1: worse. You went back to the airport on Monday for that rescheduled flight and your flight kept getting delayed. How long did you wait on Monday?
15: Um, we were in the airport a total of 12 hours. We waited for about six hours at the gate before they finally canceled our flight and then went to try to figure out the baggage and were told to wait in a three hour line to put a claim in, but that our bags were going to go ahead and go to Seattle regardless. How so. is it
1: possible that your bags flew to Seattle, but
15: you were not able to? I'm guessing they didn't fly. I, I've heard multiple things, like maybe they were trucked or different things. But uh, we, regardless, we don't know where the bags are. We have a claim in on them, and hopefully we'll see them soon.
1: Okay, so tonight, as we speak, yes. you have no idea where your luggage is.
15: Oh, no idea. What has Southwest told you about where your luggage is? They have told us that they're trying very hard to reunite us with our bags.
1: I mean, Deb, that is so frustrating. Did you have valuables in those bags? Do you have things you'd like to see again?
15: Well, I would certainly like to see them. All of our Christmas presents are in the bags. So we have the tree up. We're just going to wait it out and hopefully have Christmas eventually.
1: Oh my gosh, Deb, you are so good spirited. You are clearly, you have the (laughs) the patience of Job more than I would. Um, but, But this is ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous that you never got on your flight and yet you were still separated from your bag and they have no idea where it is. Are they going to, are they offering you any kind of compensation? What are they telling you?
15: Um, not yet. I mean, I'm hoping that if they cannot find it, they will, but not yet. It's, it's very hard to get in touch with anyone from the airline right now. So what happens when you call them? Um, let's see, last Thursday night I was on hold for four hours and kept getting disconnected every hour, and then today we finally did get in touch with them after about an hour and 15 minutes, which I thought was pretty good.
1: <laughs> and, and that's when they said what?
15: Well, that's when they said, put in the claim. If you've done that online, then that's all we can do right now. We did that and got an email back saying that they are trying to find our bags.
1: So, Deb, you missed being in Christmas, uh, spending Christmas with your daughter and your family and this whole trip that you had planned. You've been parted from your Christmas gifts and your belongings for all of these days. They can't offer you any idea of where your bag and your luggage is. You've spent hours at the airport and on the phone with them. Is there anything? How could they compensate you for this? I mean, what what would you want out of Southwest at this point?
15: Um, I mean, I guess reimbursement for our flights to get us our bags back and I guess that's all.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's the I mean, least they could do. That's the least they can do. Of course you need reimbursement for your flights. Of course you need your bags back. Um, yes. I'm, I'm looking as you're speaking. We have pictures, I guess, of your kids who were celebrating Christmas without you guys. Yes. So
15: what did yes, they do? They were in Seattle. To our neighbor, our neighbor's kids and my daughter were in Seattle and then my son was here with us. Well, they look like they're having a great time. Um, <laughs> just... We tried to make the best of it. so.
1: Yeah. And so, so, Deb, will you ever fly Southwest again?
15: Yeah, I've been thinking about that and I just think it's too soon to tell.
1: <laughs> wow. You are a patient woman. Um, Deb, we're going to check back with you. I really, really hope they can find your bag and your Christmas gifts. And I hope that they come up with something. I mean, you're just one, as we said, of hundreds of thousands of passengers um, who have had, you know, a lousy uh, Christmas because of all of this. Um, So, Deb, best of luck. Uh, Let us know what happens.
15: Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. (laughs) <laughs> OK, you too. Thank you. All right. So
1: was it Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars or was it the students who complained about their university being too hard? Up next, our panel is back with some closing arguments on some of the hottest debates, not political ones, other debates of 2022. As 2022 comes to a close, we take a look back at a few of the biggest debates of the year. Not political debates, culture debates. These come courtesy of the New York Times opinion piece, quote, the 22 debates that made us rage, roll our eyes, and change our minds in 2022. From the Will Smith slap to hybrid work to how hard school should be for students. Let's put a few of these back on the table for a few minutes and back with me now, Charlie Dent, Ron Brownstein and Molly Jongfast. Okay, great to see you guys again, um, Charlie. The Will Smith slap. I mean, that went on for so long about what that meant and what should happen to Will Smith. And I'm not sure we ever resolved that one. That one was such a shock to the system when we all saw that at the Oscars. Yeah,
14: I mean, I thought you know Will Smith had a sterling reputation up to that point, and. And everybody, including me, I'm a guy from the Philadelphia region, more or less. And uh, to see that, I was really shocked. And Will Smith was a Philly guy. We're all sympathetic to him. But that was inexcusable. I mean, I I looked at that and I said, well, that looks like simple assault from where I'm sitting. You can't go up and smack, uh, you know, a a speaker like that in in an event. An appropriate response would have been if he didn't like the jokes, you know, mocking his wife, she had that condition that caused her to lose her hair. Well, he, he and his wife could have just simply left the event and put out a statement. But no, he did that. And I just said, I thought it set a terrible signal to a lot of folks that this is an appropriate way to respond to a, uh, some speech that you found uh, uh, you know, distasteful. Yeah. I just thought it was awful.
1: Yeah. Molly, I'm, I, it, it was a shock and I'm not sure we have resolved it. I'm not, I mean, in other words, Will Smith um, has apologized. He has been banned from the Oscars, but I'm not sure that it has been resolved at the end of this year.
13: Well, a lot of these things were actually culture downstream of politics, right? Like a lot of them were about culture, but they were also, you know, there were a lot of things that got folded into the culture wars, too. But how is
1: this about politics? Like, how does this one... Because people sort of took, you know, there
13: was this sort of the people who supported the guy who got slapped and the people who supported, you know, there was a lot of sort of team, you know, people got on different teams and was the punishment enough? And, you know, I mean, I I do think there was a sort of posturing that had had, that had sort of vaguely political implications. Oh,
1: I think everything right now is through the lens of politics. I mean, when you say the teams, that our country is so team-centric— Right now, in terms of the divisions, Ron, I I agree with that. We see everything. Are you on Harry and Meghan's team or are you on, you know, the British Royals? Everything is like that. Um, I want to move on to the school stuff, unless you have anything you wanted to say. Yeah, just just real
12: quick. I'm I'm not really sure there's a debate there to echo Charlie. I mean, if Chris Rock was in a comedy club and a guy got up from the table in the third row and walked on stage and slapped him, he'd be in jail. He'd be he'd be on trial. I mean, you know, the only the only question really is why Will Smith isn't didn't face. Those consequences. Other than that, I'm not really sure there's much to debate.
1: Yeah, I think people were just so stunned, but that's just my theory. Yeah. But I, I, I hear you. If you, if oh. you were a
12: global movie star, you'd probably be, you'd probably be on trial for this.
13: Yeah.
1: Um, Okay, so here's another thing that we've debated. And obviously, there were so many cultural debates about schools this year and who Mm. controls what our kids are learning. And if something is too woke in this one that got The New York Times attention, it was whether school is too hard. And at NYU, there was a crop of kids, Molly, that. Did think that their professor, so this was a professor in um, an organic chemistry class, and they thought he was impossibly hard. They signed a petition. We urge you to realize that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. I believe they got him fired. And then his quote, the professor's quote was, they weren't coming to class that's for sure, because I can count the house, Dr. Jones said in an interview. They weren't watching the videos and they weren't able to answer the questions. So this is the you know debate about whether or not kids are being too mollycoddled um, and they're not tough enough. Your thoughts? Um, I think that, you know, look,
13: we have a problem, which is that a lot of this higher ed has become like a business, right? It's very expensive. And the students and the parents are sort of like customers. And so you ultimately find yourself in a in a situation where the goal here is learning, but these people are paying thousands of dollars with sometimes very mixed results. I mean, it's not like a college degree, you know, guarantees you'll have a great career. And so I do think you find yourself in a situation where you have these consumers who are not happy with the product and because they've paid so much money, you're in an impossible situation. I still feel like I don't quite know enough about this general situation to know exactly what happened. And there was some other reporting around this that said maybe there was other stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's never good when students get teachers fired, you know, mm-hmm. almost never good. But I mean, there are probably some exceptions, but. Uh, I just think that in this situation, you have these schools that are so expensive and these students who are very emboldened. Okay, Charlie. Uh,
14: Look, welcome to organic chemistry. Now that's a course that's used to weed out students who are gonna go to medical school. Hey, I started in engineering. I wasn't very good at it. I'm glad I got out of it. I would've been weeded out. At a place like Lehigh University where most of my family went, you want to be an engineer? You know what the dean told you your first day? Look to the left, look to the right, and one of you is not going to be an engineer when this is all over. I mean, that's how they dealt with it. I mean, they were trying to train, you know, uh, educate engineers and good ones. And not everybody's cut out for some of this stuff. I, I don't think we should be coddling people. I was not a terrific student. I'll be very honest about that. Uh, but you know what? But we have standards for a reason. And, you know, maybe there are some difficult professors, but I don't think we should be firing a organic chemistry professor uh, because some students didn't show up to class and he was rough. OK, well, yeah. welcome to higher education.
1: I love when we get to the um, Charlie Confessional part of the evening. That yeah. that is one of my favorite parts of this program. Why uh, hey, right. she got back in though? <laughs> I love it. Go ahead,
14: Ron.
12: I I was hoping that Molly was going to you know uh, respond to Molly coddling about what, what, <laughs> what you think, what, think what she thinks about being labeled that way. But look. I you know I like I don't know enough of the specifics on here but I do think like the underlying point of this that the New York Times is suggesting as is often suggested is that gener- generation Z is molly coddled and you know kind of handled with kid gloves and a bunch of snowflakes which I think is a fundamental, you know, sure there are individual cases, but it's a fundamental misdiagnosis of the situation uh, that they are in, you know, uh, facing uh, much higher, as she noted, tuition bills, not only at fancy private schools like NYU, but like Tuition is now double the share of the funding for state universities that it was when the baby boomers went to college. We've shifted so much of the burden from the community to these individuals and families, many more of whom are graduating with debt, uh, struggling to uh, accumulate enough assets to buy houses, much less likely to own houses. I mean, like the, the the underlying implication of this from the New York Times is basically these these kids have it so easy. Boy, you know, we should be tougher on them. It really, the baby boomers benefited from an awful lot more of public investment in their success. And now it's the baby boomers are basically saying the next generation are getting off uh, too easy. And it's just simply a total misdiagnosis of the conditions they face.
1: Really interesting. Okay, guys, you're not done. I have another culture question for you. Stick around, because Mm. up next, we used to really envy the super rich and now we really hate them. But we like poking fun at them. Why Americans seem to be enjoying their love-to-hate-this-super-rich moment. And we'll show you examples. Remember back in the 80s and the 90s when we used to love to watch the exploits of rich people? Shows like Dynasty and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and later Gossip Girl and Crazy Rich Asians. Now many of us love hate-watching rich people. That's why satires like White Lotus or Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery are all the rage. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. It's like you sold your company, you got rich, and now he's your best friend.
7: Are these the kind of people we're going to be hanging out with now?
5: Ladies and gentlemen. This is it. You expected a mystery. But for one person on this island... This is not a game.
1: I'm back with Charlie Dent, Ron Brownstein, Molly Jong Fass. Okay, raise your hand. How many of you are White Lotus fans?
17: Thank you. All of us.
1: All of us. Yes. And so, Ron, what's so delicious about it? I mean, I find it delicious too, but it is also cringy to see the bougie behavior of white privilege, basically, and rich people and how obnoxious they are.
12: Yeah, it is, it is kind of a sign of the times. You know, I, I I described it, I was talking to my son about it, I described it as Occupy Wall Street made into a miniseries, you know, the 99% against the 1%. And he corrected me, he, you know, given who watches HBO, uh, The White Lotus is really inviting the rest of the top 10% to scorn the 1%, which in some ways <laughs> is revealing of where we are uh, as a society. I You know, I think Zuckerberg and the whole... Uh, drama around Facebook in 16 and 20 followed by muth has been in kind of a cultural, Turning point. I mean, you go back to the 90s. We thought the tech barons were, in particular, which is of course more the knives out sequel. We thought the tech barons were going to save us. I mean, Steve Jobs was the future. Now I think it, it, they look much more like a threat to our future than the salvation. Uh, and you're seeing that I think above all, I think that more than anything else explains the shift in attitudes toward the toward the kind of the mm-hmm. top one tenth of one percent.
1: That's really interesting. I was wondering what the tipping point was, where it shifted to hate watching them and it being cringy. Molly, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think there's a
13: history, there's like a long history of Americans and Brits loving satire and, you know, skewering the rich from Evelyn Waugh down. So I do think there is a literary tradition and a television tradition there. But I do think what Ron said is really important, that there was a sort of moment when we thought all of these Tech oligarchs would be um, you know doing giving all their money away and solving the world's problems and instead they've largely caused many problems. I was impressed with glass onion because when I watched it, I couldn't believe how close it was to the Elon Musk story.
0: Hmm.
13: yeah, Charlie
14: Well yeah my reaction was look I enjoy the shows they're interesting but I, I think there's a concern though that there are a lot of wealthy people who maybe flaunt their wealth too much uh and i think that's that's a bit of a change for a guy like me who comes from pennsylvania german country you have a lot of very understated people who've accumulated a lot of wealth and you never knew it until they died uh that's kind of what i'm used to people like that who were very modest uh at least they appeared to be quite modest but scrolled away their money and they didn't talk about it just wasn't something they would do and they would never flaunt it and it's sometimes with these shows too you know you always would hear about the ugly american the american who goes abroad and behaves like a jerk because they have money and offends everybody. And I think there's a little bit too much of that in our society. And that's that's kind of the serious point of this. You know, I enjoyed the show as a perfect,
12: the White Lotus net is cast pretty broad. I mean, it's it's not just you know anti the 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 rich rich. I mean, it's hard to find a fully sympathetic character in either season. I mean, it's it's, it's it, you know it's a pretty bleak view of human nature uh, overall. But certainly, you know, it, it gives you that kind of joy of seeing that the very 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 rich are just as miserable, if not more miserable, than you are. I mean, that's sort of like uh, that's sort of the Christmas present of the show. And yet, see
14: Biffler's mom die in the whole thing. That's a <laughs> spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> sorry.
1: <laughs> well, I hope everybody's finished the season because Charlie just yeah. told you what happened. Um, that, that's uh, I, I just thought it was delicious. I think the acting is so great. I think it's just so delicious. Yes, cringy, yes, a little too familiar. Um, I mean, it brings true uh, some of the really obnoxious behavior. Um, but just so, so well done. All right, friends, thank you very much. Great to spend tonight with you. And thanks so much, everyone, for watching.
0: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.